We are incredibly forgetful people. In fact, if you've ever if you've ever thought about why it is that we have holidays, so typically it's so we don't forget something. We celebrate Christmas so we don't forget the birth of Jesus. We celebrate Easter so we don't forget the resurrection of Jesus. We celebrate the 4th of July so we don't forget our independence. We celebrate Memorial Day so we don't forget the courageous men and women who fought to give us the freedoms that we enjoy today. And our forgetfulness is something that God has always been aware of. And if you read through the Old Testament, he actually builds in reminders for his people of his faithfulness. And they're littered throughout the Old Testament. At various times, God would tell different people to build a little altar of stones in order to remind them of what the Lord did in that place. And when we come and we celebrate Good Friday, we come in order to remember We come in order to remember Jesus and his work on the cross. We come in order to remember the fact that a holy and righteous and sinless God gave his life for sinful people so that sinful, broken people might become holy and righteous in the sight of God. And so our singular goal tonight is to spend time remembering The great thing about Good Friday here is that over the next however many minutes I'm up here, you're not going to have to do anything. You're not being commanded or compelled to do something. You're simply asked to remember on Good Friday. And what we're asked to remember is that Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain on our behalf. All throughout the New Testament, there are these references to Jesus being the Lamb of God. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus for the first time since he's been baptizing out in the wilderness, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Paul in 1 Corinthians says that Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Peter in 1 Peter says, We were redeemed thanks to the precious blood of Christ, a Lamb without blemish or defect. And in Revelation 5 is the... 12 elders and 12 uh, creatures are seated around the throne in heaven. They say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And so if if we're going to really understand what it is that Good Friday is all about, we've got to understand this illusion, this illustration of Jesus being the lamb. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Exodus chapters 11 and 12. The story of the Passover in Exodus is the Old Testament's greatest typology of Christ as a Savior. A typology is just a historical reference that predated Christ that was like a shadow of what he was going to do when he came. And the Passover story is the clearest picture in the Old Testament of Jesus and his work of salvation. And so we're going to look at that this evening, but I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to work your very, very hardest not to dehumanize what happens in Exodus 11 and 12. We have a tendency to read scripture and to make, to make it like this felt board kind of experience, uh, like from Sunday school, where 
the words and the stories and what's contained in the Bible are just words and stories. We totally divorce them from the fact, we separate them from the fact that real people experienced what it is that we see throughout the Bible. And so this evening, what we're going to do is we're going to read Exodus 11, and that's where God tells Moses, this is what the 10th plague is going to be. And then I'm basically going to give you a personalized story form version of Exodus 12. And what we're going to see is exactly what it means for Jesus to be the Lamb of God. Here's what Exodus 11 says. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So then Moses goes to the Israelite people. Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight... I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel." And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of this land. The Israelites have been in slavery for 430 years. When they came to Egypt, it was this triumphant moment. They had literally been saved from a famine that was about to kill them thanks to the work of God in the life of Joseph. And they come and they're given this area of land called Goshen. The Israelite people were shepherds. And while most of Egypt was based and centered around the Nile and farming and the regular flooding that happened every year, the land of Goshen was perfect for raising flocks. And so for 430 years, they lived in the land of Goshen, tending to their flocks, yes, but somewhere along the way, we're told in Exodus, that there was a Pharaoh who came into power who didn't know Joseph. And he began to put the Israelites into slavery. And they worked, and they worked, and they worked, and the burdens got heavier and heavier and heavier. And as that happened, they began to cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And he heard them. And he begins to act on their behalf in order to free the Israelite people from the slavery slavery that they're experiencing in Egypt. And a series of plagues come upon the Egyptian people, but after each one, Pharaoh is unwilling to let them leave. And then this 10th plague happens, and God says that he's going to kill the firstborn of every individual, of every family in all of Egypt. But he's going to spare the Israelites, and he's got a particular way that he's going to do it. And so what you see in Exodus chapter 12 is an explanation to the Israelite people of exactly how it is that they're going to be spared the judgment and the punishment that Egypt is about to experience. They're supposed to take a lamb, a perfect, 
unblemished, year-old lamb. Every family, every Israelite family is to go and get one. And the text even says that if you were too poor to get your own lamb, then you should pair up with your neighbor and get one according to how much people will need to eat. So that whether you're wealthy or impoverished, every family, every household, every unit of Israel living in Egypt could be covered. The text tells them that they can take the lamb from the sheep or the goats. It's just a common, one-year-old, without defect lamb. And on the 10th day of the month, they were supposed to bring that lamb into their home. And they were supposed to keep it for four days. Imagine what would happen if you brought a one-year-old lamb into your home for four days and you've got children. (laughs) On the first day, the kids are just amazed that there's a lamb in the house. Mom never lets a lamb in the house. (laughs) By the evening of the second day, the lamb has a name and it's now Pickles. (laughs) By the fourth night, twilight, They were supposed to slaughter the lamb. Your toddler has been taking horseback rides on the lamb for like 48 hours now. He sleeps with it at night. And at twilight, on the fourth evening, dad came out and said, I need pickles. And then he took the lamb outside and he got ready to slaughter it. Imagine the parenting dilemma you face in this moment, especially if your child is a firstborn son. And while he's screaming and crying, trying to figure out why it is that you're about to slaughter his best friend, you've got to decide as a parent if you're going to tell him that God said that the blood of this lamb on our doorpost would save your life. But you don't actually know if the blood on the doorpost is going to save your child's life. You're just putting your faith in the fact that it will. And so you walk outside, you have some conversation, and you slaughter pickles in the backyard. And then the text says that they were supposed to take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood of that perfect, unblemished, one-year-old lamb, and then take that blood and wipe it on the sides and the top of their doors. And that it was the blood of that lamb that would spare your household from the judgment that was about to come upon Egypt. But it wasn't over at that point, because then you were supposed to take pickles, and you were supposed to roast him And you and your family were supposed to partake in his body. You were supposed to eat him. And so you and your family gathered around. And you began having this meal. Blood on your doorposts. Child still in shock about what's happened. And you shared that Passover meal. And there are even instructions in Exodus 12 that you were supposed to take that meal with your tunic on and your sandals on and your staff in your hand ready to go 
because this meal wasn't something that you were going to linger over for a long time. This meal was preparing you for flight. You were getting out of Egypt. Judgment was about to come. Pharaoh was going to send you out. Salvation was coming to the people of Israel. You weren't supposed to sit and linger long over this meal. You were supposed to eat it and be ready to roll. And then there are more instructions. Because after that, it says that once night falls, that no one is supposed to step outside of your house. Because if you step outside of your house, you're subject to the judgment that is taking place out there. That you were supposed to stay inside the house, safe under the covering of the unblemished blood of that one-year-old lamb that you had slaughtered and partaken of as a family. And then imagine the tension when you tried to go to bed that night. You knew exactly what the two options were. Either the blood on the doorpost worked, or the firstborn of every family was going to be killed. I don't think there was much sleeping in the land of Goshen that night. I think there was a lot of anxious waiting. I think there were a lot of parents who just stood and stared at their children. Faith firmly in the fact that they had done what they were supposed to do to be spared from the judgment that Egypt was going to experience. And then somewhere along the way, in the middle of the night, Egyptian families started to wake up. And the text tells us that there was this wailing that rose over all of Egypt. And that no house had been spared in all of the land, except for those of the Israelites. You see, there are two options in in Egypt at that moment. There's either weeping because of judgment, or there is weeping because of salvation. That while a cry arose among the Egyptian people at the sight of their firstborn in every household and out in the fields dead, there was weeping and rejoicing among the people of Israel because the firstborn in their families were alive and the blood on the doorpost had worked. And then Pharaoh calls Moses into his presence and he says, get your people and go. Leave. We don't want anything to do with you anymore. If you stay any longer, we will all end up dead. And so Israel packed up their stuff and they hit the road. But God understood that they were a forgetful people. And so he told them to institute this meal, this every year festival celebration called the the Festival of Unleavened Bread. You see, the text says that the Israelite people left in such a hurry that the dough that they had prepared to make bread out of didn't have time to rise. And so they just had to grab it and run. And God says, from here on out, for a week, every year, at this point, you bake nothing with yeast. You take a one-year-old lamb and you slaughter it and you celebrate the Passover so that you never forget. And every year when you take this meal, you instruct your children about what happened in Egypt that night. And you fast forward 
hundreds of years. And Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and they're in town for a little while and he tells the disciples to go to this upper room to prepare the Passover meal. They're gonna celebrate and they're gonna remember together. But what happens in that room on that night totally repurposes the Passover meal and puts it in the context of what Jesus is about to do on the cross. You see, at that point, humanity has been suffering in slavery to sin for thousands of years. And they've cried out in various ways for deliverance from it. At times, they have done well and followed the Lord. At times, there have been groups of people who long to find their salvation in him. But for the most part, most of humanity has sought other means to try to save themselves. And yet here is Jesus. For all intents and purposes, looks like a common, ordinary individual. But there is a significant difference. And it's that he is perfect and holy and unblemished. That you could not find a single fault in him. You see, in Egypt, God was making a very clear point, not just to the Israelite people, but also to the Egyptians and also to the rest of the world, that there is one God and he dictates the terms of salvation. And in the person of Jesus Christ and in his death on the cross, God makes very clear that there is one God and he is going to dictate the terms of salvation. And so Jesus Christ, holy and unblemished and perfect, goes to the cross on behalf of humanity. And there he dies. His blood running down the cross. His holy, righteous, perfect, unblemished blood. And Jesus sits there in that upper room that night and he takes this unleavened bread that the disciples would have heard over and over from their parents while they were growing up was this picture of the fact that the Israelites had taken flight in haste from Egypt and he breaks that bread and he says, this isn't any longer a picture of a flight from Egypt. This is my body broken for you. And then he takes this cup and he passes it around the room. And instead of representing the blood of a perfect unblemished lamb wiped on the doorposts in order to to give protection from the judgment that Egypt was experiencing, Jesus says, this is my blood poured out for you. And at the both of of each of those statements, he says, do this in remembrance of me. We gather on Good Friday to remember the lamb. But not Pickles the lamb that lived in our houses for four days and saved us from the judgment that Egypt was about to experience. We remember Jesus the lamb sacrificed willingly on our behalf. And there are a lot of these commonalities between what Jesus did and what the lamb did. For, Egypt, or for Israel in Egypt. 
You see, every house in Egypt had to have the blood. It wasn't just good enough that all the houses on your street had the blood on the doorpost. Your house in particular had to have it. It's not just good enough that you come to church and the people around you have placed their faith faith in the blood of Jesus. You have got to have it, every single individual. That lamb was brought into the house for four days and the family got to know it intimately and could have examined it closely. And not only would they have seen, you know, that this lamb was perfect physically, but they also would have known if the lamb was a little bit neurotic or if the lamb was really shy or if the lamb could run really fast or jump really high or if it liked the kids or didn't like the kids. Jesus comes into the world and he lives here for 33 years. And for three of those, he has this incredibly public ministry where 12 individuals spent intimate time with him and would have known for certain whether or not Jesus had ever sinned or whether or not he had been holy and blameless. And I think there were probably numerous times in his three years with the disciples where they looked at him and they thought, who is this guy? All the dark and broken motivations in my heart and all of the angry and hateful thoughts that I have or or whatever the case might be, he just never seems to fall victim to them. I don't understand who he is and they examined him closely for three years and then they sat with him in this upper room that night and the lamb was slaughtered at twilight. Jesus goes to the cross. And when he dies, the text tells us that darkness fell over the land for three hours. The blood of that lamb covered everyone who was inside the house, but anyone who stepped outside of it was subject to judgment. The blood of Jesus covers everyone who has come under the protection of his blood from the cross, but anyone who chooses to live outside of it is subject to judgment. Just as that meal was supposed to strengthen them for the journey ahead as they rushed to the Red Sea and then across and ultimately to the Promised Land, so too is the blood of Jesus and his work on our behalf supposed to sustain us while we journey toward eternity. Just like the Israelites when they, are the Israelites when they fled from Egypt, they didn't just God didn't just magically pick them up and drop them into the promised land. So too, when we put our faith in Jesus, God does not just send us into heaven with him to worship for all eternity. Instead, there is a journey that we are supposed to undergo for his sake and for his glory so that the world and the nations might know of the goodness of Jesus Christ and it is the blood of Jesus that sustains us along the way. There's still one God, and he has set the terms of salvation. Just like there was this incredible tension throughout the night for those Israelite families in Egypt while they waited to find out if judgment was going to fall on them, imagine being the 12 disciples after watching Jesus hang on the cross and knowing that he breathed his last. Imagine the tension for three days while they waited. had no idea what was about to happen. Just like there was either weeping because of judgment or weeping because of salvation all throughout Egypt, so too there will either be weeping because of salvation or weeping because of judgment at the end for each and every human being that has ever lived. On this day, 
we remember the blood of the Lamb of God sacrificed willingly on our behalf so that we might experience salvation. God understands that we are forgetful people. So what Jesus put in place that night in the upper room was the act of communion. And when we're together and we celebrate that together, it's supposed to be this reminder of just how much Christ has done for us. It's supposed to be this reminder of the mountain of sin that each one of us has piled up in our hearts and in our lives and that that sin held Jesus Christ on the cross in our place and that as his blood ran down from there, our sin was placed upon his shoulders and that by putting our faith in him, his righteousness is placed upon ours. Good Friday is one of the greatest oxymorons in all of the human language. What happened to Christ on that day was anything but good, but the results of it are beyond comprehension. As the Israelites ran out of Egypt that day, unthinkably overjoyed by what they had just experienced that night in Egypt, so too we ought to run toward eternity unthinkably overjoyed because of what happened on Good Friday. That the Lamb's blood was shed on our behalf. We're going to spend a little bit more time worshiping this morning, or this evening. I don't usually talk at night. What's amazing about the end of the Passover story in Exodus 12, is that when the Israelites get outside of Egypt, they are brought to worship. They don't know that the Egyptian army is going to come bearing down on them at that point, and their experience from then forward isn't always going to be one of worship. It's going to be marked by struggle and sin and at times wandering from God. But in this moment, seeing what God has done to deliver them through the blood of a one-year-old, perfect, unblemished lamb dropped them to their knees in worship. And on this night, when we think about what God has done, thanks to the perfect, unblemished blood of the Lamb of God, we ought to be brought to our knees and worship. And so I want to invite you now to stand. We're going to sing this song called For the Lamb. On a shameful day he died in the shadow of defeat, but forgiveness was his cry as his blood ran down for me. Let's sing together. <laughs>